Good afternoon. I am Chrissy Hewitt, and along with Stephen Luque, want to welcome you to the 19th anniversary Ears on Art program. When Ears on Art was conceived, William Billy Boo Beeson was the first person I wanted to bring on board as a regular part of the program. April 1, 1999, was the debut of this monthly show. I hear his voice and can see him through the glass in Studio B, making small corrections to his copy, doing a read-through, and physically positioning himself in preparation for my hand signal, the indication that the tape was rolling. On my side of the glass, I watched the monitors while frequently laughing, sometimes crying, and always spellbound by the combination of words and voice. Here now, in his own words, is Bill Beeson giving voice to what matters. I'll never forget my first art purchase. I was a humble GI stationed in Stuttgart, Germany, and an astute friend, who now happens to be head of Abrams Art Books, took me into a gallery where for the princely sum of $100, I bought a signed lithograph. In bright orange and a preposterous heavenly blue, it was one of a biblical series and showed little David playing his harp. Down in the corner was the clincher, as far as I was concerned, the artist's signature, Mark Chagall. I beamed for a month thereafter. It was one of the happiest times of my life. I think you're always happy when you're able to purchase something you admire a great deal. As far as I'm concerned, nothing can quite eclipse the exhilaration buying a painting or a print or any other piece of art. You take it into your home where it coexists with other expressions of your taste. And before you know it, it becomes part of your life. When you come home dog-tired at the end of a stressful day, the sight of some beloved art piece can light up your life and make everything suddenly seem better again, just as the sight of it can begin or end the day well. Sometimes, alone at night, you look around the room and think of the stories connected with every piece of art you own. This is Bill Beeson, who thinks everybody should own at least one piece of original art. It's patriotic. In today's and next week's program, Chris and I revisit some of our favorite programs from prior years. The first guest is someone whose voice is as recognizable as her name. Our special guest today is Julia Child. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. And how are you, Krista? I'm fine, thank you. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Krista. Good morning, Julia. We are here because we're thinking that cooking is very much not just an art form, but very much a visual art form. I was thinking we could start kind of at the beginning. When you go to the store, when you go to the farmer's market, where a lot of people say that they see you oh, these days, oh. as you go from vendor to vendor, what sort of things are you looking for? Something delicious, like the last time we was at our farmer's market here, they had the most beautiful, fat, green, fresh asparagus. It's exciting. I don't go in for organic, all of that so much. I, as long as it's fresh and beautiful, that's okay with me. Do those things then stimulate what the menu's going to be for the day or what yes. you might decide mm -hmm. to cook? Or I just buy them anyway and put them in the menu or build a <laughs> menu around them. Mm -hmm. What sorts of things do tend to come into play as far as thinking about how a meal will look as opposed to just how it will taste? Well, it has to look nice. They teach us that the arrangement of the plate was very, very necessary. You have to have color and texture. 
so it has to look interesting and appetizing, and it must look like food. <laughs> it's like sometimes things are arranged so it looks like kind of a flower arrangement or something like that. It doesn't look edible. I've always had problem with certain restaurants who do, I call it fusion food, and they build these sculptures, you know, and I find, how does one eat that? It's, <laughs> I mean, they're pretty to look at, but you're right. They, they've transcended the food definition. They're on, onto another level. I want people to know what they're eating and to be able to see it. Are there foods that you would purposely not put together because of either how they might appear together or their textures are too similar? I always remember when I was growing up, my mother arranged dinner, and when it was all brought and we served, she began to cry because it was all white. She had forgotten to put other <laughs> colors in. <laughs> she just hadn't thought about the presentation. So you really have to think about that, I think. Do you remember any real surprises? Maybe things that you ate? I remember parsnips. We had some parsnips, and I pureed them. I got done ahead of time, so I kept them in a, in a double boiler, so they kept cooking in the pureed form, and they were perfectly delicious just because of sitting and cooking a little more. So that was a very happy surprise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, a beautiful meal is, is a poem in itself, isn't it? I think so. Mm -hmm. Well, there are people who just don't care what they eat. <laughs> My brother is one of those. He yeah. says, food is food. Yeah, that's, that's it. And yeah. I think he's just missing out on a tremendous amount of the enjoyment in life. That was a little bit of an interview that Stephen and I had such a good time doing with Julia Child. Pietra Santa, Italy, New York City, and Medellin, Colombia. We meet someone who calls all of these places home. Co-host Chrissa Hewitt had the opportunity to interview world-renowned artist Fernando Botero in his studio in Italy. Good afternoon. Hello, hello. We like to find out how people got interested in art. Do you remember when it was that it first excited you as a child or as an adult? Well, I started uh, making drawings of bullfighting when I was in, in school, in high school. And perhaps that was uh, the thing that brought me to my interest in drawing. One day, a little bit later, when I was like 16, I started doing watercolors, not a bullfight, but just landscapes, still lives, people, etc. At that moment, I became an artist. It's when you do something in order to produce some kind of beauty or, or art, then even if it's very bad, you become an artist that day. When I was 18, I, I dropped out of school to become an artist, and I have been doing this all my life and nothing else. I think that's called being able to have it all happen the best way. Yes, I was very lucky to be able to, to do that because I, I came from a family with no money. But uh, somehow I, in the beginning I used to sell little watercolors. Then I won the National Prize of Painting in Colombia in 1952. That at that time was $8,000, and I came with that money to Europe. Europe was very inexpensive, very, very inexpensive. Then I could stay almost three years with that money. And where did you stay, and what did you do for those three years? First, I spent one winter in Madrid. Then I went for a few months to Paris. And then, uh, since I was completely obsessed by Italian art and the Renaissance, I came to Florence, and then I stayed here for uh, almost over two years. When I came to Europe, I knew about Picasso, the Impressionist, uh, things like this. But uh, I didn't 
have the chance to see any great art before. I, I didn't know the great art exists. Then, of course, it was in Madrid where I discovered the old masters. I was uh, discovered by Chasse Book on Piero La Francesca that uh, still is my favorite artist. And then uh, when I saw these uh, paintings of Piero La Francesca, what I wanted was just to come to Italy to see the original. And I'm glad I did because I think it was very, very good put me in a, in a road to, to something more serious and, and then I'm, I'm glad I did it. You have been doing the painting and eventually you moved into doing some sculpture? Yes, when did so that, that happen? was in 1949 I became a professional artist. And it was only in 1974 when I started doing the sculptures. I just stopped doing my painting for one year because of course it's something that you have to learn from the beginning. And then I put myself completely into sculptures. Well, you know, and since then I did a lot of exhibitions of monumental art, monumental pieces. Uh, many in New York, in Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, Washington, and then in all the capitals of Western Europe. I'm as, as interested in, in sculpture as I am in paintings. Then, you know, now we have like two professions. <laughs> Your whole style is one of very round, very voluptuous kinds of forms. It seems like that would translate well three-dimensionally. Well, yes, yes, you know, because of, I was very interested in volume can express volume in, in a flat surface. In my case, I was doing my figures and I moved to sculpture and I did my figures with the same feeling, of course, that I, that I had in my paintings. And that was the case in all these uh, fantastic artists of the Renaissance that did painting and sculpture. They did the same form, the same feeling in one medium or the other. You keep trying all your life, but you know, it's, uh, it's not easy. It's not easy. It's very difficult. You have to say the same style because, you know, a style comes from conviction. A conviction comes from reflection. You're recognized by the sculptures of my painting immediately. Absolutely. Yeah. What is that conviction that you're about? The conviction is a lot of things. That I believe that volume was a very important element in painting because it brings an exaltation of life, of sensuality, a mystery. The fact that you can produce the idea of, of space and volume in a flat surface, you know, the most visible characteristic is that I have this, this interest in, in volume that is completely unusual today. I understand you're about to have an exhibit open in Rome. Yeah. Can you tell me about some of the work that will be in this show? The idea of, uh, of this exhibition is to present works work from 1902 to today. They say about 18 or 20 oils and about 30 or 35 drawings uh, based on the Abu Ghraib uh, torture. Is it often with your work that you find that you're responding to events and things of the time, or is this kind of unusual? Well, uh, well two things that has impressed me lately uh, is the violence of my country, Colombia. I did uh, like 80 paintings and drawings that I donated uh, to the National Museum in Colombia. Of course, I was very impressed in my country that I love so much. But it's not that I'm going to become the, the painter of disasters or, or, or catastrophes or anything. No. Well, your work certainly has been seen all over the world. I am a workaholic. I enjoy very much working. I do that every single day. When you're working large in the foundry and stuff, obviously it does require other people with other skills. What challenges are there for you in terms of being able to communicate? I, I do the thinking. 
they just do put uh, the clay there because they have like a pantograph mm -hmm. and they just put the clay. I am there to, to do the, the last skin, the toys here and this and that. I am always doing some corrections because, you know, once the piece become bigger, you see it in a different way. It has to be adjusted a little. Every time you change the, the size, then it, is, it has to be adjusted. So it was very much the foundries and the work that was done here that brought you specifically yes, yes, to this yes. town? I, I saw the founders, then I came uh, a bit later. And I started working here since 30 years ago. I'm very fond of this town. From Brotero in Italy to the Whitkin Twins in Los Angeles. Jack Rutberg, proprietor of Jack Rutberg Fine Arts. We have become so jaded in this age of film, cinema, computer that we have forgotten how to look. Jack currently has a show titled Twin Visions, which for the first time together, shows the works of identical twins, Jerome Whitkin and Joel Peter Whitkin. Both brothers are internationally renowned in their respective disciplines. This is Stephen DeLuke, and I am here with my co-host, Krista Hewitt. Say hello. Hello. And we are actually back at the Jack Rettberg Gallery uh, to do an interview with your honored guest. This is a particularly special and historic occasion to bring these remarkable two visionaries, identical twins, united here in L.A. for the very first time. And that's remarkable. And, and how did you accomplish this? Wishing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to point out here that Jerome is a painter and Joel Peter is a photographer. I understand that when you were younger, you, you just took separate paths in creativity and life. So what was the impetus to reunite you? This is Jerome Whitkin. My brother talked about family, the need to have this show. I think it's time after six decades of putting it together and saying uh, these two people survived their desires and put together a body of work that um, had to be seen together. And Joel, how about you? Well, I was always interested not in drawing and painting as Jerry was, but in observing uh, the world to basically uh, see where or how I could fit into it and uh, what I observed and what I wanted to make permanent. Photography, to me, made the best kind of sense because it's closer to, let's say, objective reality. But I didn't really fully accept that. I, what I wanted to do was uh, change the reality in a way that uh, I enjoyed and I was challenged by. You know, most of what's out there, I'm not a street photographer, obviously. I stage the work, and usually it's inside. And I rather bring the world to my studio than myself into the world. Uh, it's true what uh, Jerry said about uh, six decades. It does take a lot of courage and determination and will to keep going under very, very strange uh, circumstances, personal and, and also uh, social. But I think that uh, this particular grouping of both our works is uh, very, very elegant, beautifully hung, beautifully lit. This is an incredible gallery. I'd like to say something that adds to Joel. Um, when he said staging uh, the work, uh, staging the interest, our mother, uh, who was a very gregarious, 
different kind of woman. I mean, she wasn't living up to the standard uh, predictableness of kids with their mother and all that. And she would take us to boxing matches. She would take us to actually a lot of Broadway shows and even off-Broadway shows. And I remember distinctly going into a theater in the round where you're so close to the actors in a circle that you actually smell the smoke they're smoking. And, you know, if they if they spit, you see the spit. And, um, you know, the, the presence of body heat, where is that? And I think the word staging is part of both our work. Uh, why we choose to have a uh, tableau sometimes effect, uh, the presentation of people in a room. Uh, and where I think we both actually use real theatrical lighting and um, actors, models for the whole thing. So I think that it's like a waking dream. Uh, you can have an idea, then you test it with the real situation of people and gesture and all things. So I think that's a, a component. If that relates to twinness, maybe that's okay. I was thinking this morning, this is going to be a strange analogy, but I think, you know, when I, I think of all the students I've had teaching at university level, I never in my career had any identical twins. Maybe mm-hmm. twins, but not identical. And I think also, um, this morning I had this little analogy about Jack and the Beanstalk. And if Joey and I are both Jacks, we climbed the Beanstalk. And unlike the fable, uh, we became the giants. If I could put in an <laughs> egotistical moment, we inherited the, the treasures. We didn't have to steal it. Since you actually developed these completely separately from one another, um, are you shocked that they're so similar in the message and the me- methodology? Well, I think the, uh, for me the, the connection there is that I think we're both romantic moralists. It's interesting to see uh, individuals, even though they come from the, the same point of, of internal time, can have it, the word similar might be impossible to, to uh, connect, uh, but have viewpoints about history and about uh, art history too, as well as social history. The point is that uh, the work is made to edify rather than just decorate. I think there's always been people, especially in the arts, who basically try to elevate and heal through their observations and, and what they put down as. Uh, the final element of, of their thinking at a particular time. I'd like to add to that. Uh, just yesterday, an NPR was driving back to school, and this music classical uh, program, uh, the man who was making the program was talking about uh, Eric Hulse, The Planet, Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, and he said that was being done just as Europe was at its darkest moments. I think the survival of civilization happens with the dreamers, not with the schemers. How in a time of so many images that we see in the millions per day on television and advertising, what makes an image arresting and severely important that you really have to stop and look at it and think about it and come back to it? And I think that is the hook that we are losing sight of. And I think that is what the show does. Joel, when you're working, do you find yourself Needing to breathe? No, I, I, I work every day. Uh, I always tell my wife eight days a week. I'm challenged by it. I get up in the morning and I'm ready to go. I get up about six and I breakfast for Barbara and myself. And I go to the gym and I come back and uh, we check email and then I go to work. It, it's uh, compelling. It's not addictive. That interview with Jerome and Joel Peter Whitkin in 2014 was the first time that the identical twins 
have been interviewed together. I am Chrissy Hewitt, and along with co-host Stephen DeLuke, look forward to next week when we continue our anniversary journey. Thank you.